The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, one of my favorite theologians is a guy named G.K. Chesterton who wrote this fabulous book called Orthodoxy. He also created the character Father Brown, if any of you watch the BBC. And he wrote this. He said, there is the great lesson of beauty and the beast, that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. And what Chesterton was writing about is this idea that we get loved backwards and that we think things are lovable and because they are lovable, then we in turn love them. But in reality, it is our love of something, a love of a person or a beauty or a thing that actually makes it lovable. Because one of the truths of our existence as human beings is that you were made, I was made to give love and to receive love. And more than you think, your life is conditioned by love. Like who you spend your time with, what you spend your time doing, the houses that you live in, the clothes you wear, the way you wear your hair, the jobs that you do, so many of the things that we do on a daily basis that we think either happened to us or that were some benign choice, that those things really are about what we love and how we love and how we have come to love. That the baseline at the bottom of who we are as human people is love. And more than you think, what you choose to do What you chose to do yesterday, what you will choose to do today, what you will choose to do tomorrow is about love. And so if you were here last week or you caught it online, you know that Pastor Mike talked about this idea of creating new habits and new rhythms and that those rhythms and habits should be aligned with who it is that you are becoming and who it is that God has invited you to be. And that's just the way that we are. Everything that we do, we are becoming something. One of my favorite philosophers, James K.A. Smith, wrote it this way. He says, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. Your daily life is a reflection of your deepest desires. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves which are habits we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos, and a telos is just an end, an aim, a goal. It's where we get the word telescope. I might be learning to love a telos, that I'm not even aware of, and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. What Smith is saying is that your life is governed by what you love. As a matter of fact, the title of this book is called, You Are What You Love. And you might not even know what's happening under the hood, how you're being shaped, how you're being formed, how you're coming to love the things that you love. So if James K.A. Smith is right, that the center of who you are and what you do and how you function in the world is what we love, 
And if G.K. Chesterton is right, that for something to be lovable means that it has to be loved first, then if there's a part of life that's crucially important for us to get right, it's love. But there's actually a problem with love. And the problem is not love itself. The problem is our practice, our understanding of love, because we throw around the word love all the time. Like you've already loved breakfast. Some of us love our car. We love our houses. We love our partners or our parents or our children. And we say things that we think are really deep, like love is love, which is great. But every time someone says something about love, there's this part of me that wants to stop and pause and say, what do you mean by that? Because the reality is, like when you say the word love, when I say the word love, we can be talking about really different things. You can meet different people. You can be a part of different organizations. You can have a different religious philosophy or political philosophy. And you might use the word love. You might believe very deeply that what's running your life is a love for something. And that be completely different, the complete opposite of what someone else, someone else in this room means when they say love. Because the reality is that there are behaviors that could be a friend or a family member that you would go to them and you would tell them that they need to stop doing that. They don't need to do that anymore. And your motivation when you have that conversation with them is you're telling them that because you love them. And there's someone else in their life who is completely fine with that same behavior, that same orientation to the world. They're fine with all of it. They might even encourage it. And if I were to ask them about it, they would say that they were doing it out of love. We mean really different things when we talk about love. Let me tell you the tale of two churches. On July 17th, 2015, a white supremacist named Dylan Roof walked into Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And he sat through an entire prayer meeting. And at the end of it, he told the group how black people were destroying America. He thought he was about to launch a race riot. And he brandished his weapon and he shot and killed nine people. Major Naomi Broughton was one of the first responders. She works for the Charleston, South Carolina Police Department. And she worked with them and with that church for over a year after the incident. And this is what she said a year after it happened. She said, I've never seen the multitude of victims as forgiving as this. But there were a lot of angry people. I was angry. I don't know if I would have been as gracious as those family members were. That's one church. Another church, Westboro Baptist. And some of you have heard of Westboro Baptist Church. They're a very small church. And they made a name for themselves by traveling the country to attend the funerals of soldiers who were killed in action 
and they would protest and hold signs outside of these funerals saying that God hates this group of people or God hates that group of people. And so a British documentarian named Louise Thoreau asked the church's leaders, she asked them, do you think what you're doing brings people closer to Jesus or pushes them farther away? And the group's spokesman, Cheryl Phelps Roper, she said that the $200,000 that the church spent every year flying to funerals to protest them, she said that they did that to spread God's love. So here's my struggle, and it may just be me. When I hear someone say, we ought to love, or love is love, or love comes first, I want to ask them what they mean. Because in the history of the world, people have never agreed on what love is. If you're like me, you've done some things, said some things to people, and your motivation was love. And to them, that did not feel loving at all. And you know this because you have had people in your life who have said some things and done some things to you, and they would tell you that what they did and what they said, they did and said out of love, and it didn't feel loving at all. So I was thinking about this over the Christmas holiday while I was reading the book To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's just one of those books that for whatever reason in high school, I missed. And I didn't think that I could probably get all of you to read To Kill a Mockingbird, but you're in luck, because there's a movie. So Ecclesia, over the next several weeks, uh, we're going to be in a series called Sacred Frames. And some of you might remember that during COVID, when everything was online, Pastor Mike led a small group, a discipleship group called Sacred Frames, where the group watched a movie together and talked about redemptive themes throughout the movie. And since I can't get you all to read To Kill a Mockingbird, I thought we'd watch some of the movie. So To Kill a Mockingbird takes place in a small Alabama town in the 1930s at the height of the Great Depression. And it centers on one family, the father Atticus Fitch and his two children, his son Jim and his daughter Scout. And also folded in there is their good friend who visits in the summer named Dill. And this is the 1930s in Alabama and the book captures the ethos of that time. So it is racist and segregated, and it sounds like people talked in 1930s Alabama, or if you're me, like people talked in 1980s in Mississippi. <laughs> but it's not just that family. There's also down the street, the Radleys, who are very strange and reclusive, and the most strange and the most reclusive in that family is the adult son, Boo Radley. And on the outskirts of town is where all of the black families, all of the African-American families live. But right on the outskirts of that neighborhood, 
one family, the Yules, live there. And they are poor and uneducated. The kids only show up for school on the first day so they can be counted by the state and go home. They're often unemployed. And they're the kind of people that the town would rather just ignore. But as Harper Lee says in the book, the only thing that gave them any sense or any source of pride was that the Yules weren't black. And the second half of the book looks at a young man named Tom Robinson. And Tom Robinson is a young black man who lives in the black neighborhood, which is very close to where the Yule family lives. And he is accused of assaulting and beating Bob Yule's daughter, Mayella. And after Tom Robinson is charged, Mayella's father, Bob, meets Atticus in the courthouse and sets out his expectations for the trial. Very hard, Cap. Mr. Ewell. Captain, I, I'm real sorry they picked you to defend that nigga that raped my Mayella. I don't know why I didn't kill him myself instead of going to the sheriff. I would have saved you and the sheriff and the taxpayers lots of trouble. Excuse me, Mr. Ewell, I'm very... Hey, Captain, uh, somebody told me just now that uh, they thought that you believed Tom Robinson's story again, iron. You know what I said? I said you wrong, man. You dead wrong. Mr. Finch ain't taking this story against Iron. Well, they was wrong, wasn't they? I've been appointed to defend Tom Robinson. Now that he's been charged, that's what I intend to do. You've taken his story... Excuse me, Mr. Ewell. What kind of man are you... You got children of your own. Well, for those of you who don't speak Southern, <laughs> let me translate. Bob Ewell is beside himself that Atticus Finch would believe Tom Robinson's story over his and Mayella's. And what I find so fascinating about this story is that it's not what it seems to be about. Because it seems to be about law or justice. And that still happens today, whether it's Tom Robinson or Emmett Till or George Floyd. The language is all about law and justice, but that's not really what it's about at all. What it's really about are affections about loves. And Bob Ewell knows this, and he believes that Atticus Finch, his affections, ought to lie with people like him. That it's not about law, and it's not about facts, it's not about what could be proven, it's not about what actually happened, it's about affections. And more than you know, all of us are making decisions every day about who we believe, who we trust, what we support, what we reject, 
not based on facts or justice or law or the good, but our affections, what we love. And if we love this over here more than that over there, or this group of people more than that group of people, much of our lives run under the steam of our affections. Remember what James Smith says, our deepest desire is the one manifested by our daily habits. And Yule thinks, regardless of the law or the facts, that Atticus Fitch's affections ought to be with people like him and Mayella, no questions asked. And Bob's not the only one. Later, as the story moves forward, right before the trial, when Tom Robinson is moved to the local town jail, Atticus suspects that something bad is going to happen. So when he puts his kids to bed, he goes down and sits in front of the local jail and just reads the newspaper. And this is what happens. Making his bunches out chasing that old Sarah looking for us. You know what he was, and we come in this other way. Yeah, you ain't never thought about that, had you, Mr. Finch? I thought about it. I can't see Atticus. Well, that changes things. Atticus! Jim, go home and take Scout and Dill home with you. Son, I said go home. No, sir. Well, I'll send him home. Don't you touch him! Let him go! Let him go! That'll do, Scout. Ain't nobody gonna do Jim that away. Now you get him out of here, Mr. Finch. Jim, I want you to please leave. No, sir. Jim! I tell you, I ain't going. Hey, Mr. Cunningham. I said, hey, Mr. Cunningham. How's your entanglement getting along? Don't you remember me, Mr. Cunningham? I'm Jean Louise Finch. You brought us some hickory nuts one early morning, remember? We had a talk. I went and got my daddy to come out and thank you. I go to school with your boy. I go to school with Walter. He's a nice boy. Tell him hey for me, won't you? You know something, Mr. Cunningham? Entailments are bad. Entailments. Atticus, I was just saying to Mr. Cunningham that entanglements were bad, but not to worry. It takes a long time sometimes. What's the matter? I sure meant no harm, Mr. Cunningham. No harm taken, young lady. 
tell Walter you said hey. Let's clear out of here. Let's go, boys. Well, throughout both the book and movie To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Fitch is criticized oftentimes for the way he lets his children just run around town. And having grown up in the South, like that's just the way it is. But on this occasion, when his kids should be at home in bed, they come and not only save Tom Robinson's life, but they save their father's. But did you see what happened? A scout runs up the stairs. She notices the father of one of her classmates, Mr. Cunningham. And she doesn't talk to him about what's right or what's good or what's legal. She doesn't beg on the behalf of her father or Tom Robinson. She reminds him of his affections, his son, Wally. And if the thing that you love, if the person you love were to see you right now, what would they think about you right now? There are all of these decisions, the ways we move in the world. If the people that we love were to see us do that, I know this firsthand. I had a very bad customer service experience about two years ago with a company. You've had these. And I finally got through to a representative. <clears throat> and my daughters were in the room. And I said, y'all need to step out for a minute. <laughs> Mr. Cunningham and all of them there, I bet before they loaded up in a car and grabbed their firearms and drove down to the jail. If I had asked them why they were going to do the thing that they were about to do, they would have said something about love. Either love for a culture or for their town, a love that tries to protect other people or thinks that it's protecting other people. If I were to ask them, they would have said it had something to do with love or someone that they love. But as the story moves forward, as the movie moves forward, we learn that Tom Robinson, the man who's been accused, cannot use his left arm. He had it caught in a cotton gin when he was 12 years old, which means that he could not have possibly attacked Mayella the way that Mayella and her dad say that he did. In fact, the very opposite happened that he was trying to do Mayella a favor, and she attacked him. And at that very moment, her father, Bob, came home, saw them through the window, Tom ran away, and most likely, Bob, in a drunken stupor, beat his daughter. And that's the way that Harper Lee tells the story. And there is no illusion that Tom Robinson could not have done what Mayella said he did. And this is Atticus Fitch's closing statement at the trial. She did something that in our society is unspeakable. She kissed a black man, not an old uncle 
but a strong, young, Negro man. No code mattered to her before she broke it, but it came crashing down on her afterwards. The witnesses for the state, with the exception of the sheriff of Macon County, have presented themselves to you gentlemen, to this court. And the cynical confidence that their testimony would not be doubted. Confident that you gentlemen would go along with them on the assumption. The evil assumption that all Negroes lie, all Negroes are basically immoral beings, all Negro men are not to be trusted around our women. An assumption that one associates with minds of their caliber, and which is in itself, gentlemen, a lie, which I do not need to point out to you. And so, a quiet, humble, respectable Negro who has had the unmitigated temerity to feel sorry for a white woman has had to put his word against two white peoples. The defendant is not guilty. But somebody in this courtroom is. Now, gentlemen, in this country, our courts are the great levelers. In our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and of our jury system. That's no ideal to me. That is a living, working reality. Well, those of you who have seen the film or if you've read the book, you know that Tom Robinson is convicted of assaulting and beating Mayella and sent to prison, where not long after having been there, he is killed in prison. And he's sent to prison by what, by what St. Augustine would call disordered loves. And what St. Augustine meant by disordered loves is a love for a lesser thing or the wrong things over the greater things. Because what St. Augustine understood is that our actions, all that we're doing is because of loves, because of our affections. But some of those affections are simply disordered ordered. And the question then becomes, what does, what does love look like? In Mark 12, Jesus has been teaching and people, whether they agree with Jesus or disagree, whether they like him, they're impressed. They're amazed by the teaching of Jesus. And some of them don't know if they're ready to push all in with this Jesus of Nazareth guy, but they have good questions, questions that we would want answered. 
And one of them approaches Jesus in Mark 12 and says this, tell me, teacher, what is the most important thing that God commands in the law? It was a really good, important question that you would want to know from anyone that you would think would be a religious or political leader. What's the most important thing? And Jesus says, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the eternal one is our God. And the eternal one is the only God. You should love the eternal, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second great commandment is this. Love others in the same way you love yourself. There are no commandments more important than these. Man approaches Jesus and he says, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing? And Jesus gives him two, which a lot of us would rather he would just give him one. Because we're all great with a God saying, love God with all of your alls, with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. We're all good with that. But Jesus says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because you can't do the first one if you can't do the second one. And this is pretty big. Because let me tell you something about you. Do you know how much you love yourself? A lot. Everything that you've ever done, there's a justification. Everything you've ever thought, even if you admitted you were wrong, well, let me tell you why I did that. You love yourself a lot. You love, you know what you love to eat, what you don't love to eat, you love where you love to go. Most of the time, what's driving you is your love of self. We pick careers because of love of self. We pick hobbies because of love of self. We pick partners because of love of self. We teach our children to do certain things and not do certain things because of love of self. It doesn't take much for you to love you. And Jesus says, if you wanna follow me, love everybody else the way you love yourself. But our loves, like the people at Emmanuel AME Church or the people at Westboro Baptist Church, our loves don't just float down from the sky. They are formed. They are shaped. We never think about this. But our affections are formed by our parents, by our partners, by our extended family. They are shaped by how we are raised, by when we were raised, by whom we were raised, the culture in which we were raised, what was valued, by who people around us told were valuable people and who weren't valuable people. Our affections are rooted in what we think is best or our view of human flourishing. Like, I love a lot of things. I don't love anything like I love my daughters. Like I love pancakes, but not like I love my daughters. And I say I love my daughters, and you receive that and think, of course. But that hasn't always been the case. 
In the course of history, people didn't love their children. Fathers and mothers didn't love children. These were assets. And still around the world today. Do you know the most endangered group of people in the history of the world? Like whether a child was left out for exposure or taken to the local dump, what a life looked like as it formed, the three most dangerous world, words in the history of the world, the three most dangerous words were, it's a girl. But when I say I love my daughters, you accept that as a reality because that's the world we are living in. And the reality about love is this. Love is not just love. Our loves are shaped. They are formed. They are conditioned. We get love inputs from so many different places in our lives and in our time that it's really quite silly to say love is love. If love was just love, if it were just out there and automatic, if it were just something that you stumbled into all of the time, then Jesus would have no reason to have ever told us to love our neighbors. He tells us because our loves, our affections can be shaped. We direct our loves, we nurture them, we conform them, not every time in every case, but if Jesus thinks that he can teach us to love our neighbors, he must think that we have some agency over our affections. That this group of people that you can't seem to love is because you have chosen not to love them. The person that you can't seem to love is because you have chosen not to love them. When you turn on the television and you watch your favorite cable news or whatever it is you do and you can't stand those people, you can't extend grace to those people, they can't be brought into your circle of affection is because we choose to. And guess what? Right now today, you are what you love. We are more than just a bag of impulses. And no one else in the world is willing to tell you that. Well, when it comes to Kill a Mockingbird, I'm tempted to give you a spoiler warning about the end of it. But since it was written and published in the 1950s, I feel like the cat's out of the bag. So Bobby Wool, in attempt at retribution against Atticus Fitch, who exposed him to be a liar on the witness stand, attacks Jim and Scout on their way home from a Halloween event at their local school. And Scout is in a big costume, she can't see really well. Things go sideways really fast, people are being pushed and pulled, and they are taken home. Jim, who has had his arm broken, is taken home by the mysterious neighbor down the street, Boo Radley. And the lingering question about To Kill a Mockingbird is about Bob Ewell, because he is found in the street, stabbed 
and killed by his own knife. And no one knows who killed Bob Ewell. And the sheriff, the sheriff wants to tell the story that Bob Ewell fell on his own knife and died. While Boo Radley stands in the corner. And at the end of that story, it seems like justice. But is it? I think one of the questions that this movie is asking is whether or not the only justice America has to offer is the kind that looks the other way. And whether that's the case with Tom Robinson, who is convicted, absent of any facts, by an all-male and all-white jury, who decided, like, this is where our affections are housed with these kinds of people, or by the sheriff in the aftermath when Bob Ewell is killed, saying, this is where my affections are wedded. In the end, I think Harper Lee is asking her readers whether or not, whether or not our experience of life is contingent upon anything other than the arbitrary and contingent blow, blowing breeze of our neighbor's affections. And this is why it is so important to listen to Jesus when he says, love your neighbor. Because the very experience of our neighbor's lives, the joys and traumas of life, is as much or as little as they can expect from our loves. That our capacity to love our neighbor fundamentally shapes the world in which we inhabit. The jury chooses the hate of racism over the love of neighbor, or at least over the love of this neighbor. In the same way that a lack of love of neighbor has always led to war and racism, misogyny, sexism, violence, and genocide. The world we inhabit is shaped by Christians' ability or inability to love their neighbor. The way we see our neighbor is the way that life is. There are just too many Christians around the world and particularly in the United States. What we experience every day, whether it's in your school or your workplace, whether it's in our country and world, is based on whether or not you and I have a deepening, expanding ability to love our neighbor. And when Jesus talks about loving neighbor, he places no conditions on who that neighbor is, and so, yes, he does mean 
your Latino neighbor and your black neighbor and your Muslim neighbor and your gay neighbor and your straight neighbor and your Republican neighbor and your Democratic neighbor, all of your neighbors, because the joys and traumas of life are contingent upon love of neighbor and the most our neighbors can expect from life is the most or the least that we can love. So here's the good news or the bad news. The world that you inhabit today and the world that you will inhabit tomorrow is contingent upon your ability to love. And Jesus decides that if it takes sacrificing his very self to love his neighbors, then it's worth it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.